and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. It's rock and roll bedtime stories. <laughs> what do you think of that open? I think the only thing's missing is uh, pizza. That's uh, it. <laughs> That's, that song's got everything you need in life, so, except pizza. That's Fuzzy you Bunny. You have some food. Fuzzy Bunny Fish Fry is the name of that band. And I, I start with them because if you want to get involved in the show, you can email us at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And uh, the guys from Fuzzy Bunny Fish Fry emailed us. <laughs> and they, as you can tell, what they do is a little bit like parody. And so they really liked uh, the parody episode uh, that we did here recently on the show. Uh, Jerry writes the show and says, great episode. I'm a Dr. D fan. I heard that Elvis's performance of Hound Dog on Ed Sullivan was a send up of a band that Elvis had seen in Vegas where the guy was shaking all around. I heard that this was an inside joke to Elvis's band. And I wonder, do you think that counts as parody? What do you think? Oh, man. Oh, that is unreal. Uh, have you ever heard that story? You're like the Elvis guy. No. And, and the other day, I was just floored when Dolly Parton was like, I'm going to pay for everyone's tuition that plays at oh, all, yeah, of our, yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the parks. right? Uh-huh. Uh, and, I, and I turned to my wife and I was like, there's never been another Tennessean that's ever made a bigger impact ever than Dolly Parton. And she looks at me, not even from American, goes, Elvis. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. You got Elvis. <laughs> I was so taken by So maybe by you're Dolly. not the Elvis guy? Is that what you're saying? No, I said I was just taken by Dolly in that moment of, of uh, how like she's like the best human being. This is not where Jerry's note ends. He also and, and honestly, Jerry got us because I cannot believe we didn't mention this. He says, "You guys were talking about changing the style of a song, and that made me think of a big blind spot. Me first, and the gimme gimmies." <gasps> how oh, did we man. miss that, man? How did you oh. and I miss that? I think it's because we like me first and the gimme gimmies so unironically that it didn't even register. Oh, listen. I went in to go pick up some Valentine's Day candy at this at this place that I got for for someone my my wife right, and I walk in and and through the years we've always had and like and I'm like I you have on Kenny Rogers and I, I float into the whole like do you like she believes in me have you heard the me first and the gimme gimme's version of she believes in me it's the best you know. I mean, it is funny because we did have that moment, you and I, not that long ago, where we were like, on the count of three, name your favorite Me First in the Gimme Gimme song. And we both said she believes in me. <laughs> and we have much different reasons. It has to be. It, That's it, my first concert. It, it has just, I mean, talk about a song with good bones, which is something we were playing with that idea last week. Like, that song is so well written from a melody and structure standpoint. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful song and arrangement and everything. And, and, and if there's people that are like, Kenny Rogers, it's like, ah, man, well, take a listen. You know, some people are like, you know, the guy can't sing. And it's like, well, that's fair. But like, listen to the melody of that beautiful <laughs> song. 
I appreciate Jerry. Uh, thank you for writing the show. Thank you yeah. for sharing your band with us, Fuzzy Bunny Fish Fry. Uh, and the song we played was, of course, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, the most appropriate song for our podcast. So, Jerry, thanks for the note. Uh, we get lots of notes, though. I've got one from Tim, too, that is going to get us a little more into the show today. Uh, Tim says... The Jerry Rafferty episode got me thinking about Yacht Rock. So, uh-oh. <laughs> and I was wondering about another Yacht Rock sort of guy that I've always loved but know nothing about. What can you tell me about Mark Jordan? I, I can see the name, but I don't know. I couldn't put anything to it to him in terms of music. And I was I was like, which artist is, are you going to name? And that was not where I was going first. Right? Sure. Like, fair enough. Because I'll be honest. So I'm ready. I, went, I had to look him up. I wasn't familiar. Thanks and for the letter, Tim, by the way. There's really three songs that sort of made a cultural impact, kind of. And we'll get into where and how they made a cultural impact. Three tunes, and they have the most Yacht Rock-ish titles I've ever heard. Uh, Beautiful People, Margarita, and a song called Marina Del Rey. Living in Marina Del Rey. Man, you better than you got. I mean, oh my God, dude. This that, song. Bass, that bass player, that bass player is dancing on a beach while he's cutting that bass track. <laughs> on Spotify, it like so much freaking fun. On Spotify, Mark Jordan has a thousand listeners currently in LA, and I guarantee you, all of them are dirty old men with sports cars. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty old man with sports. I mean, just whew. so here's the deal. Tim goes on to ask. He says, he says, how what? judgy, Brian? I know, I know. He says. <laughs> I'm intrigued with this guy. Did he write for others? Why didn't he blow up bigger? And I'll tell you, these are all good questions. And I'm going to answer this question about his level of fame very quickly by saying, as an American, the first thing you have to know about Mark Jordan, Canadian. And this is very important. Uh, Yeah. So a year or so ago, I guessed it on the podcast, 278 to Lighthouse Road, and we talked about Canadian music culture. But I don't know that we've ever really gotten into it on this show proper, so it seems like a good excuse to do it. So besides the free healthcare thing, Canada loves their art. And this is something we know from our radio background, but if you work in Canadian radio, you find out that there is this Canadian artist rule. Do you know about this? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. And that, that's why that like people in Canada love Sloan. Because, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So we can make we can make a whole list of these bands, right? But it, it's actually yeah. called the Canadian Cultural Policy, and this is totally real. The population of Canada is only a tenth of the size of the U.S., even though it's huge geographically, right? And so, to support local music artists, Canada has to cover the costs over a smaller population. So, if yeah. I mean, this is just math. If local Canadian labels and management firms want to offer a three million dollar signing deal to an artist, in most cases they'd have to turn to private and public subsidies for support because the Canadian market can't support it. There's just not enough people. So in the absence of such support, the Canadian talent pool, they wouldn't be able to succeed because there's just not the, the infrastructure. Canadian artists would have to move. So to keep Canadian artists in Canada, they come up with this idea of the Canadian government called the Canadian cultural policy. And so the first thing it does is it sets a 35% quota for commercial radio stations, meaning that 35% of all music on the radio in Canada has to be deemed Canadian. Now, I, Every, Everything I do, right. I do it for... <laughs> right. 
And like, for instance, Our Lady Peace, a band that I love very, very much. They're a Canadian band. They're huge in Canada. They play arenas in Canada. One of the only times I ever got to see them in the United States was opening for Three Doors Down, which is an embarrassing statement to say out loud. So if I go crazy, <laughs> the selection has to meet two of four criteria to be considered Canadian. Okay, the music is composed entirely by a Canadian. The music or lyrics are performed principally by a Canadian. The music selection is recorded in Canada or performed wholly in Canada and broadcast live in Canada, which is a lot. Uh, or the lyrics are written entirely by a Canadian. Okay, so these are the these are the things. Now, the other that's, thing that's fair enough, right? I I think it is. The other thing about these Canadian cultural policies is they subsidize new artists. Literal financial support from broadcasters in the government. We were talking before the mics came on. You asked me about my brother, who's been a touring musician for a lot of his life, and we were talking about his new musical project and such. And he toured with a band briefly called Ten Second Epic, who's a Canadian rock band, uh, and they were getting subsidies from the Canadian government. And I remember him telling me about that years ago, being like, "Dude, we, we were with these guys, and they like had stuff we don't have." And we were like, "How did you get this?" And it was like the Canadian government cuts us a check every month. So. Yeah, this has two effects uh, that you feel as a music fan. Number one, given the population of Canada, there are way more musical superstars than there should be. And we've already started to do this back and forth, though. We're kind of talking about the ones that you might not that might not be as popular here. But listen to this. Currently, I'm just looking at like the top 40 right now. The Weeknd, Drake, Alessia Cara, Shawn Mendes, Justin Bieber, all Canadian. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's quite the bench for being a tenth of the size of this country, right? Yeah. And listen, I don't know if you know this at all, but Canadians are really funny. You ever notice the stand-up comedians from Canada are funny? Huh? <laughs> oh, really? <They're> like, <laughs> not just the like all the SCTV guys. Yeah, that's sake, true. Like, that's Eugene true. Levy and John Candy, like that whole crew, like man, just out of control. Terrific, funny, and it and it does show that when you support the arts, you you know, some magical things it, it happen. It sort of feels like the best excuse for justifying supporting the arts. Like, it seems yeah. like, look, this is an experiment that was run and we can see that it worked. Uh, I give you one example. Best example ever. ABBA. <laughs> but, but I thought they were Swedish. They are. I'm just saying, no, I'm just saying, what happens when you, you decide, let's support the arts and, like, what possibly could happen? Like, I... Was not my thing, and I was very young, I guess, when that band was popular. But like that band was like an enormously popular, and they they took subsidies for costumes and and everything from the Swedish government. Yes, yeah. Oh, so the so, Swedish government does this too? Yeah, yeah. You could. Uh, what my understanding is that you could in college you could just have like a some type of art project that you have of something uh, that you're working on, and then you can apply for a, a grant. Programming note. Uh, Murdoch's wife is Swedish. That's why he knows this. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to Canada because the rock and roll there is okay, so astute too. Secondly, and more to the point of, of the effect this has on a music fan, is there are artists, as we have already discussed, that quote unquote make it in Canada that don't cross over to the US, but they have a nice tidy career in the provinces because there's a bunch of internal support. And in short, Mark Jordan is one of those dudes. So that's the short answer. But let's talk about Mark for a second. And to talk about him, first you have to talk about another singer. And that would be his father, Charles Jordan. Now, Charles Jordan does opera, like real high-class singing in the 40s. 
he puts out some albums. Yeah. Mostly classical and folk stuff. And then he starts giving lessons. And here's a fun fact I ran across. He actually vocally trains William Shatner. <laughs> so Mark Mark Jordan's dad teaches William Shatner how to sing. So Mark has some pedigree. He goes to film school, but then he turns to music and he ends up having limited success with a few albums that yield the singles that we mentioned. And then he goes on to write and produce for other folks. So here's the short list. I mean, because Tim asks, did he write for other people? Yes. Here's the short list of folks who have performed a song that was written by Mark Jordan. Jim Brickman, Cher, Chicago, Joe Cocker, Natalie Cole, Sean Colvin, Josh Groban, David Hasselhoff, Jeff Healy, Don Johnson, Kansas, Kenny Loggins, The Manhattan Transfer, Olivia Newton-John, Bonnie Raitt, Diana Sawyer, Sawyer Brown, Tiffany, Kim Carnes, and Rod Stewart. Wow. And you know what Rod what you know what Rod Stewart's song he wrote? Some guys have all the luck. A close. He wrote he wrote an even cheesier Rod Stewart song. He wrote Rhythm of My Heart. Jeez, I played that on the radio so much. Did you play that song a lot? Yeah, and I and I, and I, I want to I want to tell people sometimes that are like younger. It's like you know Rod Stewart used to be kind of cool. Oh, like he was I, in fa- he was in Faces, right? And that band that band was really good. And then for the couple albums right after that, it was really good. But he always did cover songs. Like he did cover songs right from the beginning. That that is the opener on Rod's nineteen ninety one masterclass in adult contemporary cheese called Vagabond Heart. Vagabond Heart. Which oh. also brought us Have I Told You Lately his his tortured version of Have I Told You Lately. It's funny because the the version that charts of Have I Told You Lately is not the version on Vagabond Heart. It's the version on MTV plugged a few years later or unplugged. That's correct. Correct, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So, Our lives intertwined before we knew. Dude, fraud Stewart, man. <laughs> uh, I, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because I did like sort of learn backwards about Rod Stewart. Like I learned the cheesy stuff, and then I was like, oh, wait, he was a badass rocker, and this is why women still go nuts and go see him, even though it looks like his face is made of plastic. Have you have you seen the inside cover of Footloose and Fancy Free? Mm-hmm. It's it's like it's that, that thing where there's a he's got like a big bottle like a champagne stuck down his pants and shit. like it's hilarious <laughs> with like there's like him with sports cars supermodels like that was his he was he's one of those guys I guess now I mean that's a, that's, that's a, a lot of people by the way it's a lot of people that Mark Jordan wrote songs for and it's that's a really big song right there and let me tell you what what is happening now with Mark Jordan Mark still gets quite a bit of work in Canada. Uh, he even put out a covers album in 2019 that includes a cover of Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Wow, that's weird. It was okay. weird, especially because he didn't like change any of the language that's a little out of vogue, and it feels a little weird having a white Canadian guy sing some of those words. Uh, yeah. He's also married and has kids with another Canadian singer-songwriter named Amy Skye, another product of the Canadian uh, cultural policy who we do not know in America, but uh, apparently is sort of a thing. They put out a cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys like two weeks ago. And it's actually pretty good. So things are going okay for Mark Jordan, and uh, he's doing just fine. So you might be asking, why are we even talking about him? And that's what what I'm here to do. I'm here to draw a line that is going to lead us to Mark Jordan. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Pair, Pair Networks. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get one of those up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it really easy. P-A-I-R, Pair. 
Pair Networks does just that. They have over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses, and not just in America, all over the world, right? So Pair makes it easy for you. It's a do-it-yourself website building tool. It's got features. It includes drag-and-drop page design, and they've guaranteed if you need a support technician, they're ready to help you whenever, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you're going to receive one free month of web hosting. So you can see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting, and you can use the code QUICKSTART. That's Pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART, to get started today. Because Mark Jordan isn't insanely famous and not a household name, there's like not a ton of stuff out there about him. And so when you start to try to research him, like I have been doing, you get a, like sort of the same version of the story and you get a lot of like basically the same press release. Like at some point, some press agent created something and it's gotten repurposed over and over, right? And so you get a lot of these same phrases and there's this sentence that keeps showing up whenever I read about Mark Jordan. And I'm going to read it to you. This is the sentence. And it's usually in the first paragraph or so when it's sort of saying, here is who, who Mark Jordan is. He studied film at Brock University, but sir, soon turned to music, coming to public attention as a guitarist for Bobby V. And then that's it. There's nothing else about this connection. What do you know about Bobby V? I, um, I just, I'm sort of familiar with the name, but that's about so, it. A teen, to- teen Idol. Take good care of my baby. So, I mean, you know, you get it, right? He's a good-looking young dude playing this sort of stuff, sort of the, the pre-rock and roll thing that ends up getting sort of cannibalized by the Beatles, right, in 1964. But uh, he was a really, really big deal. Let me give you some of the chart stats of Bobby V so we can put this in perspective because I know he's he has his name hasn't really stuck around. But Bobby V had 38 Hot 100 chart hits, 10 of which reached the top 20, and he had six gold singles. Right? Not a shabby career, just a career of a different time. Yeah. But Bobby V actually has two connections to top-tier rock and roll history. Two. Number one, Bobby V was from Fargo, North Dakota. But in the early days of his this band that he had with his brothers, they were figuring out how to play and develop a sound and get a following. And so they played around Minnesota and North Dakota a lot. And they knew musicians in that area. And one night, Bobby's brother Bill brings a piano player to practice because he thinks keys will round out the sound of the band. So the guy comes in and introduces himself as Elston Gunn with three ends. And I'm not sure why that little detail has maintained a place in the history books, but it is very clear that Elston Gunn was to be spelled with three ends. So that's, that's how you make his statement. It, it, it's, you know, it's all about the little choices you make, right? Um, it's and, like it's like when you decide to rate your movie with six X's, girl, <laughs> girls without skin. <laughs> You're letting everyone know. Look, this is where we're going. Gun, like that means you are rock and roll AF. Well, that's not the only thing he says, right? So he says, "My name is Elston Gunn with three ends." Also, I just came off tour with Conway Twitty. Turns out, oh. both of these oh, things oh, are oh. ball face lies. <laughs> Uh, he also doesn't own a piano, which is very tricky because these guys are playing road gigs in that region. And so they have to rely on the venue they play to supply a piano and they keep showing up and these places are like wheeling some rickety thing out of a back room. So they 
try this for a couple of gigs and it just like doesn't work because the pianos suck. And this would be piano player is talking about enrolling at the university of Minnesota anyway. And so they, they end up letting him go. They only play like three or four shows with him. It's amicable from what I can tell. And when Elston Gunn goes to the university of Minnesota, he tr- kind of trades his piano in cause it's impractical for an acoustic guitar. Turns out he has much more aplomb, uh, when he plays the acoustic guitar than he ever did when he plays the piano. And it also turns out that Elston Gunn is not his real name, as you might, you know, with the three ends. You, you might figure. What? His, his real name was, was Bobby, or Robert to his mama, Robert Zimmerman. Oh, wow. Yeah, me and you, we call him Bob Dylan. And <laughs> so, it, he didn't come off tour from Conway Twitty. No, he did not. He made that shit up. Bobby V and his brothers gave Bob Dylan his first gig, and I love the fact that Bob Dylan lied about his resume to get a gig with Bobby V. Wow. And, and they were, I mean, to be clear, they were a local band at this point, right? They hadn't broken yet. Uh, they were they were on the way up, though, because crazily enough, this little thing, uh, this impressive intersecting that Bobby V had with uh, the altering the world of pop music, something actually happened before this that was even bigger. And it put him right up against one of the most infamous instances in all of rock and roll lore. So... Bobby V grew up around music. His dad, his uncle, they all played casually, and his older brothers had a band. And he was in junior high learning to play the saxophone and begging to sit in with these dudes. And he convinces his brother to teach him some guitar chords, and eventually they let him sing because he like keeps showing up at band practice and he knows all the words. Well, his brother, that's interesting. So these guys start practicing as a unit in mid-January of 1959. And Bobby is stoked because he's a really big fan. As I assume most 15-year-olds who want to play in bands in 1959 were, he's a really big fan of Buddy Holly. And he's got tickets to see Buddy Holly play at Moorhead Armory in Minnesota that was just sort of over the state line from Fargo. Now, let's leave Bobby V there for a minute, and let's talk about Buddy Holly for a second. Someone sent me a picture about two weeks ago, Brian, and it's a picture of him and Waylon, and they're in a photo booth together. <laughs> and, Put that and, on a and, T-shirt. And and, and um and you know it's but Buddy looks amazing, and he's smoking a cigarette. I've went down a Buddy Holly tube uh, before, where I've listened to Buddy Holly like tons of it, and then tried to find out the configurations of how other people have interpreted his music because he's sort of underrated sometimes because he gets sort of just kind of thrown into this idea of the day the music died versus the actual entirety of his scope of work and how influential it was. You can fill in any color that you want to fill in as we go, so feel free to jump in. But what we need to emphasize about 1959 is how big Buddy Holly was. And he was on a 24-date tour that was winding in and around the upper Midwest in January and February, which I have to say is terrible timing for touring that area of the country. Yeah. Very cold in places like Iowa and Minnesota during the semi-year. And this tour becomes an absolute disaster. I did not know any of this backstory. But there's a whole bunch of acts on this tour, and they're all in one bus. And the heating elements in the bus stop working. And at one point, Buddy Holly's drummer is removed from the tour. What? Because of frostbite in his foot. 
Oh my gosh, that's awful. That's I've how that's how this. bad it is, right? So this begs the question. I mean, like I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, if Buddy Holly's a big deal, why the heck is a huge star like Buddy Holly on this tour to begin with? What's he doing? And the whole reason that Buddy Holly is touring the frozen tundra of North America in the dead of winter is because of a long series of bad deals and questionable decisions, both, to be fair, professional and personal. So we're covering a lot of music in this story. I mean, good God, we started with a Canadian yacht rocker. Um, So I'm going to cliff notes this a little. But basically, Buddy Holly makes a hard turn a few years into recording because he wants to lean into this emerging rock and roll sound. So he literally takes the records he wants to sound like and figures out who produced them. And the guy who produced those records is a guy named Norman Petty. So he goes to Norman Petty. That'll be the day comes out of this relationship very, very quickly. And then the event, the invention of, of the crickets and Buddy Holly and the crickets and the sort of varying names of what they were called and when they were called it all happens during this period. And it all has to do with a bunch of record label legal mumbo jumbo stuff. But Petty becomes Buddy's manager, Norman Petty. And things go okay for a while. But Buddy Holly's very young. He basically marries a woman named Maria Elena two months after meeting her when she's the receptionist at his publishing company. Do you know this story about his wife? Um, yeah. It's been a long time. She, yeah, she'd never right. been on a date. No. She has to ask her aunt, her aunt for permission. She's Sure, her parents had died or something. She's living with her aunt. Five hours in, Buddy Holly asks her to marry him. Yeah. It's like totally it's a it's a really amazing rock and roll like like footnote that really should be on a big post-it note because it's a really interesting thing about a, a very important historical character that that happened to him. Well, you know? and imagine being his manager at this time, right? And you're thinking, dude, you're like barely an adult and you have you know all of this career in front of you. Don't marry someone that's terrible for the image. And and that is sort of Norman Petty's reaction, right? And he tells Buddy he needs to hide this. So Buddy says, you know, Maria Elena needs to tour with us. And he says, if she's coming out on the road, we have to pretend in public that she's the band's secretary. So that happens. They, have, they lie about who she is, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, lots of friction around this whole thing. And it doesn't help that Buddy has sort of been suspect about Norman Petty's accounting practices anyway. And so when you add in this idea that now Norman is giving him grief about this woman, we know how this works, right? When the buddy, the buddy who says like, I don't like the woman, it never ends well for the buddy. And, uh, he decides he can't buddy decide, buddy Holly decides he can't have Norman Petty as his manager anymore. So, he parts ways with him, but he's not been getting paid right. And so he doesn't have a ton of cash. And to move them to New York, he needs money. So he signs a deal with General Artist Corporation. General Artist Corporation at the time is the second largest booking agency in the world. Think, I mean, sort of like William Morris, right? Yeah. And Necessary Evil. And he strategically aligns with them because he he hears, and I don't know what the details were on this, but he basically gets word that they can get him on a British tour so he can go overseas and do this thing too and whole different market, the whole thing. But (laughs) there's always a, but they're like, listen, that's cool. We'll do that. But first you got to go on this upper Midwest thing with all these other artists in a bus like Dion and you know, all these other folks. 
Um, and so he agrees to do it. And GAC will come under public scrutiny for this later. But basically, the tour they send these artists on is logistically terrible. Yeah. There's not enough time to get from point A to point B in a lot of cases. And so that's why a few weeks in, just a couple of days after his drummer has to leave the tour because of frostbite, Buddy Holly gets fed up, is totally exhausted, wants rest and relief from a cramped frozen bus, and so he charters a plane to carry him and his bass player and his guitar player from Iowa to Minnesota. Now, his bass player gives up his seat to a guy on the tour who had the flu. His guitar player flips a coin with another performer and loses. And so Buddy ends up in the air with Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, who were acts on the tour. And meanwhile, back in Fargo, 15-year-old Bobby V is eating lunch at high school, and his brother Sid walks up and says that he just heard on a news flash on the radio that Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens are dead. Sure enough, the promoter of the show is in the radio studio saying that the show that's supposed to be happening that night in Moorhead is still going to happen because everybody else was on the bus except for Richie Valens, the Big Bobber, and Buddy Holly. We've worked with promoters in our time. Promoters got bills to pay. They're still, they're still doing this, and Bobby V still got tickets to the show. But this yeah. promoter's in the local radio studio, and he's saying, listen, we need bands to fill the bill. So the bass player <laughs> in this band with Bobby V and his brother Bill picks up the phone and calls the radio station and says, hey, I got a band. We'll come play tonight. And they go, oh, yeah, you guys you guys got a lot. You, 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 you know... You're well-established in the area? And he says, yeah. Keep in mind, they've been playing for two weeks. They don't have a set. And that's how, at 7 p.m. that night, they end up backstage at the show that was supposed to be headlined by Buddy Holly at the Armory. And you know you know who that bass player was that switched seats, don't you? Yeah, it's Waylon Jennings. He talked about it just a couple years ago, really, again. Waylon sings lead vocals this night. They yeah. send them out. Waylon still performs this night after Bobby V and his band play. And they don't even have a name. They're sitting side stage, and the guy goes, cool, uh, up next is, uh, hey, kids, what's your name? And they're like, uh, The Shadows. This gig, on the day the music died, filling in, technically, for Buddy Holly, is the first gig for a guy who eventually goes on to have 38 chart hits. One thing you learn when looking at rock history, especially in the first few decades, is that careers are short and fast, like we talked about. And Bobby V ends up wedged between the pop of the 50s and the rock of the 60s, and so his star sort of burns out quickly. He continues to tour and record into the early 70s, and it's in this later period that we end up back where we started with Tim's question in our yacht rocking, our Rod Stewart schlocky hit writing subject, Mark Jordan. How did Mark Jordan end up playing guitar for Bobby V, and like when did this happen? And I couldn't because... Like I said, Mark Jordan doesn't have enough stuff out there about him to really go into this. So I had to dig, dig and dig and dig. <laughs> and I found a podcast. Of course. A few years back, Mark did a Canadian music podcast. Of course, the episode link is in the show notes. 
It's called the Adamantium Podcast. It's out of Toronto. It's hosted by this hosted by this dude named Adam R. Harrison. He's like a photographer and a designer, and he talks to Canadian friends and minor celebrities and such. And he gets Mark to do his podcast, and he has the same obsession I do. He keeps trying to ask Mark about this Bobby V connection, and by the end of the interview, he gets Mark to tell him this story. And I listened to this story several times because I couldn't believe that Mark was telling the story. And I was like listening to be like, is he being serious? Because this story is freaking out there. Basically, Bobby V needed a pickup band when he played Canadian markets. So we've talked about this concept before, but like this was pretty common with guys in the fifties and sixties where if they toured, they, they would like they blow into a town and local musicians would back them up. So they didn't have to have the touring infrastructure especially if you're like sort of coming down, right? And you're not as famous as you used to be. So Bobby V, when he goes into Canada, he doesn't want to take his band with him because, you know, visas and everything else. So he's like, get me Canadian musicians. So there's some connection. Mark is in a cover band at the time. And this cover band gets connected via some agent to Bobby V's people. And they get offered this gig to be his backing band. So he does quite a few dates with Bobby V throughout Canada. And one night they're in the far north And after the show, they get offered drugs, which Mark said happened all the time. And Mark trips on acid. And he's wandering through Canadian farmland, still dressed in his stage gear, which was a satin shirt and platform boots. (laughs) And he ends up in this farm and in this field. And he's like sort of turned around. And I don't know if he like lays down or what happens, but all of a sudden he looks up and realizes he is surrounded by cows bovine wait wait not how awesome how awful he's on acid (laughs) terrible it must be freaking terrible what do you what do you think and he says this with no irony in the interview what do you think happens when you open your eyes and there's cows all around you and you're tripping on acid what's what do you think the next voice you hear is i I don't know the voice of god so (laughs) god says mark quit this band and go back to Toronto and write songs. Oh, I love that God showed up when all the when all the cows did. That's fantastic. And so Mark Jordan quits the band, goes back to Toronto, begins writing songs, and that's why we have Marina Del Rey and Rhythm of My Heart. What I'm saying is Buddy Holly, direct line from Buddy Holly to Rod Stewart's Vagabond Heart record. Wow, I mean, I, I love that you took. I love that you took some like <laughs> bubble gum and got us from those places. Wow, listen, big league. I got some big league chew, and I'm gonna put it all over here. I'm gonna get us all the way from Buddy Holly. It's pretty and, intense. It was, I, it was that was a lot of calisthenics I just did. I mean, also you you crossed decades, like you know, half a century. I couldn't believe that I found an interview where Mark Jordan told this story. Like it's nowhere. Like you, I, it's only in this interview. Like I looked all over the place to try to get some sort of connection into Bobby V and Mike Jordan, Mark Jordan outside of his bio. And yeah. there you go. It was the and cows. It was the voice of God. It was the acid. And most people just don't want to give up that. That was a particular scenario that they had where they made a life decision, <laughs> but you know what? It happens to people. They just don't tell you. 
God bless Mark Jordan. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show, it's we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can also check out our website, we are the story where you can keep up with everything that we're doing. And what should people keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories, everybody.